This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello, I'm James Harding. It's Monday the 17th of July. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Sources in the Ukrainian security services have carried out an attack on the Kerch Bridge that links Crimea with Russia. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. The men's world number one, Carlos Alcaraz, has won his first Wimbledon title, beating the reigning champion Novak Djokovic in a five-set classic. I'm joined by Kat Nealon, Patricia Clark, and Basha Cummings. Hello, all. Hello. Hello. Basha, thanks so much for sitting in the editor's chair My on Friday. Pleasure. Thank pleasure. you. In a moment, I'm going to ask each of you to pitch a story from the past few days from this weekend that you think really matters the most. And we're going to discuss each one and, as ever, try and work out which one really should be leading the news. It strikes me that it's been an oddly newsless weekend, itty bitty stories, not particularly gritty ones. And I suppose in the space, I've been left with this one thumping, perhaps obvious thought, a hangover from last week's wall-to-wall coverage of the BBC. And it's this, that if Victoria Newton, the editor of The Sun, were running BBC News, she would have to resign. If the BBC had published a report alleging that a prominent person had received sexually explicit pictures from a minor on the basis of a single source, without sight of the pictures without proof that the person were underage, if the BBC had on seven instances in that first report referred to the person as a child without contacting them and then either failing or refusing to publish their denial, and if the BBC had alleged that this quote-unquote top star is accused of paying a child for sexual photos and that that person could, quote, face criminal charges and years behind bars, only for two police forces to say they had no evidence of criminality. And if the BBC had chosen not to name this quote-unquote top star, but in publishing, they knew that they could reasonably expect the person to be identified because the person would be pulled off air. And if the BBC had published the story without due consideration of defamation risk or reputational risk for, in effect, outing a man... And if the BBC had done all of this without going on out, out on air to explain and defend their editorial decision, but instead simply stuck to the claim that it was publicising the tardy and inadequate complaints process, well, if the BBC had done that, then the person running BBC News would have to resign. And I know that that may seem like an obvious thing to say, 
but it's extraordinary how much focus it seems to me has been on the BBC, on its own processes, its personality and culture. But you can't help thinking a week on, if you remember where we were sitting here a week ago, just consumed by trying to understand why the person hadn't been named, what was in the public interest, what was and wasn't known. I found myself thinking over and over again over the weekend that the questions for the sun are just not going to go away. And they're going to be asked by lawyers, by campaigners, by politicians, and almost certainly by advertisers. So I know that we didn't figure out a way of getting to this story on Friday. And I know that we had some incoming over the weekend saying, there's still much to understand about this story. My thought, perhaps an obvious one was, if that person, if that editor were running the BBC news, they would resign. What does that tell us? I don't know what you think, Basha. I think you're right. And you said you said before we started recording, I've got some wobblings here. That's not I mean, that's that's it's a relief to hear you say that. It's a relief to hear somebody say that because I think at the end of last week we were all sort of tangled up and consumed by the questions around privacy and media law and you know maybe the sun was hiding behind its sort of tabloid cloak, as it were, and this is what tabloids do, but I think you're right that if, if it is as we think it is, that they didn't have the evidence, that they merely sort of pulled the pin out of the grenade and threw it and let everyone else do the work, then there are serious questions to answer. And we can't, we shouldn't let this story just be swept up in, okay, he's now in hospital and the BBC will do their internal processes. We must think, who do we hold accountable in this situation? And how are we going to hold them accountable and not just let it dissipate? Chad, what do you think? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this story because, as as everyone in this room knows, um, the sort of Me Too um, sexual misconduct stories are something that I've covered quite a lot and something that I hope to continue to cover. And this story, leaving aside the sort of impacts on the individuals involved, has, to my mind, potential repercussions for anyone that wants to actually uncover genuine sexual misconduct stories, both because it makes editors rethink and reappraise what their sort of appetite is for these kind of stories. And it also makes the wider public think again about what their appetite is for it. And unfortunately, I feel like this kind of happens a lot where you have these kind of waves of Me Too stories and then people sort of overreach. Sometimes journalists overreach and report stuff where it involves um, consenting adults and is more tittle-tattle than actual misconduct. Um, and then you get the kind of backlash of, well, are we intruding into people's private lives and where's the line? And my concern is that this may be that moment where people have intruded into someone's private life and it will have that knock-on effect for all of those who do want to report on genuine instances of abuse of power. What do you think, Patricia? I mean, I completely agree that this is clearly a case of editorial misjudgment from the sun on the one hand. I do still think that there are outstanding questions for journalism as a whole in terms of how we deal with privacy cases. And in particular, in the context of social media, you know, if you keep someone anonymous and you've still got a witch hunt of people on Twitter trying to guess who that is, there's a different kind of responsibility there. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. How do we rethink our laws to protect people against that? Yeah. It's interesting. It goes in lots of places. It does still go into the BBC. I'm not suggesting yeah. mm. that they're not um, questions the BBC will want to answer. And you're right. I haven't thought through the questions about how do you 
observe laws of privacy when the practice of privacy is being denied on social media. The only thing I think we shouldn't forget is that there are other allegations. Whether they are as serious or whether they clear the bar is a different question, but we should remember that other people have also come forward. Well, let's leave that story where it lies for the moment. Long story short, what have we got? Kat, why don't you go first? The last twist of the tax man's knife. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't think there ever is the last twist of the tax man's knife. I think the tax man's always got another twist. Um, Basha. If not now, when? Biblical. Um, <laughs> Patricia. Lights, camera, industrial action. Oh, very nice. good. Okay, I, think I, know, so I, I have to that. admit, I'm not the first person you, to come up with that. <laughs> Why don't we start with, if not now, when? This is the Inferno. Uh, and you mentioned that actually it hadn't been a big news weekend and that not much had happened. I would say you're wrong. A lot has happened. Um, and partly I'm pitching this because of a response to um, the decision that I made on Friday's episode when I was hosting this podcast. Uh, somebody, one of our colleagues pitched the heat story and I decided not to go with it. And somebody as a result uh, wrote in one of our listeners called Andy and he said something that I think is worth reading out. And then I'll tell you why I've decided to actually go against my own decision on Friday and pitch heat. Uh, so Andy wrote to say, I wanted to react to the idea that climate change stories are fruitless as everyone who has a role to play knows what it is but doesn't do it. I feel strongly that's wrong and it's journalism's failure. The recalcitrant politicians don't act because the electorate doesn't motivate them to and the evil energy companies keep digging carbon out of the ground because aspiration is intertwined with resources and energy consumption. Journalism is the only tool to rewire those relationships. And then he talks about how a low-carbon life is usually portrayed as yogurt weaving, composting toilets, (laughs) beards and BO. Um, And he basically ends by saying, if journalism explains the choices, then recalcitrant politicians become motivated by votes and the evil energy companies are turned by market forces. And I thought, well, he's right. And it is journal- there is a fault in journalism here about how we cover the climate story. And so I'm not going to pitch to you the extreme heat in the US. I'm not going to pitch to you Phoenix, Arizona, which is one of America's fastest growing cities now becoming almost unlivable in its latest heat wave. I'm not going to pitch to you that Death Valley in California is likely to record its highest ever temperature of all time. I'm not going to pitch to you flooding in India, not going to pitch to you extreme heat in Japan, and I'm not going to pitch to you the the fact that the world just had the hottest week on record ever. I am going to pitch to you a deathly heat storm in southern Europe, which is about to hit. Record temperatures are going to be recorded in Italy, Greece, Spain and Morocco. And the reason why is that there's this new anti-cyclone that pushes into the region from North Africa. um, And it could see temperatures in Sicily reach 48.8 degrees Celsius. Uh, The European Space Agency says that this week coming could be the hottest week ever in Europe. Um, And actually people in Italy, particularly the president of the Italian Meteorological Society, is saying this, there's no doubt this is climate change. Heat waves are linked to global heating. So uh, Luca Mercalli said that it's much easier to connect a heat wave to global warming than flooding. Floods have a component that are linked to climate change, but we don't know the extent. But heat is... uh, 
much more directly caused by the climate crisis, there is no doubt this is the most direct phenomenon that we can perceive. What explains to you, in your mind, the disconnect between the experience of this, these extreme weather events, the knowledge of man-made climate change, and the failure of really meaningful structural change in the way the economy works and the way in which policy is made? Agency. I think that's the thing that stops this from... I think the experience of extreme heat or flooding, that we can, we now know that these things are directly ex affecting our lives. But, but what do you do? What can you do? Kat, can, can I ask you a question? So how do you square what Basher's saying about extreme weather and the politics you see in Westminster. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the point that we, we had a similar discussion last week about this very issue because my story was about mortgage rates going up. And, and my argument was that all the while that people cannot afford to put food on the table because they're having to spend more on mortgages or rents or whatever it is, going to food banks and so on, actually the impetus to get your politicians to do anything is minimal because your world is shrinking. You're just focusing on the immediate here and now. You're not thinking even a year from now, let alone 20, 30 years from now. Yeah. Patricia, what do you think? I've been thinking about this a lot and I feel like we spend a lot of time in journalism talking about how we convince people that the heat waves and climate change are linked. And I think that we have to accept that people will see that now the bigger job is talking about infrastructure. Yeah. Um, investment in investment. clean technologies. The it's changes. about the carrot rather than the stick. Can Basher. I just finish my pitch by Sorry. saying... Yes. I don't know how many episodes of this podcast we've done now. I'm looking at our producers. Number 37. This is number 37. To date, a climate story has not led the news on this podcast, and that is why my pitch was called If Not Now... When? Oh. <laughs> That's heavy. You know what you want is a really strong story, one that everyone's going to be talking about, and then with a sort of glacé cherry of guilt. Yes. <laughs> here for the guilt. <laughs> Patricia, let's go to you next. Light, camera, industrial action. I imagine this is about your close friends in Hollywood. My close friends at Meryl Streep and Jennifer Lawrence. Um, <laughs> This is Hollywood's biggest strike in 60 years. It began very dramatically um, at the Oppenheimer premiere. A bunch of stars walked out of the Oppenheimer premiere in solidarity with actors who are striking. Um, they're calling for better base pay, better residuals, and some protections around AI, which I'll get to in a moment because that is a really interesting part of the story. They join writers who have been on strike since early May. And I think this is a really interesting story for a number of reasons. Number one is it's a business story. I know it's hard to forget that when the central characters are glamorous and... Lovies. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a backdrop of streaming having really dramatically affected the industry. So Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers are all struggling. They're in really heavy debt at the moment because they have been trying to invest in moving away from, from cable TV and into into streaming, basically. Um, they've had redundancies across the board. And Bob Iger, who's the CEO of Disney, has said this is the worst possible time for actors to be striking. Whereas I guess the actors would say, well, that's why we're striking now. Mm. Um, and there's a really interesting issue at the heart of this, which is AI. So originally in the writer's strike, they said, we want absolutely no artificial intelligence apart from for research. And after Chat GPT launched in November, um, 
you know, we've seen generative AI and the potential it can have for writing and, and the impact it can have. And they're saying we don't want any part of that. We want our jobs to be protected. We don't want to be refining scripts that are written by AI. Now, the actors are saying we don't want AI to take over our jobs. We want our likeness to be protected. We want to get money every time our image is used. There have been some really interesting in the weeds details about this negotiation because it's a real sticking point where the studios have proposed that an extra can come in, they can be filmed for a day, and their likeness can be used in perpetuity inside that film. So they only get paid for a day. But that's part of the sticking point. That's part of the debate there. That these background actors can then be used in the future in different scenes mm-hmm. once their image essentially has been handed over to the studio. Yeah, within the same film is what they're saying, but that's been part of the negotiation because they're saying, well, why can't... There's the, the risk that they will then be used in every single film for the rest of time and the actor won't see any money. As what, like man in shop? Yes. You'll just have the same image. Yeah, and you can see why it's appealing to a business. You have to have to pay 100 and something dollars a day for someone to just sit there in the background... If you're third spear carrier in one scene, you can be third spear carrier. In any scene? Okay. Is the economic heart of this story really about the business of streaming and the changing economics of film and television? And then actors are also trying to negotiate some settlement or protection around AI, i.e. AI has captured the imagination of all of us who mm. are feeling vulnerable to it. Or is it really the case that it's both a streaming issue and an AI issue? Are they both equally weighted in terms of the actors and the screenwriters? So I think it is the former. I think that they've come to a negotiation. They last negotiated in 2020. They're now doing a renegotiation of the contract. And it happens to be that AI, there's a huge amount of conversation around it. They're leveraging the conversation around AI to try and negotiate better pay and and better negotiations. But it is a genuine concern for actors. So this is an interesting one, Basha, because I think that I have a predisposition right now to bump all AI stories right to the top. (laughs) For for this reason, for for this reason, I, I met someone last week called Sebastian Bubeck, who is the head of machine learning at Microsoft. Go with this. It's a bit of a digression, but you'll see where I get to. He wrote a paper in March, was one of a bunch of people who wrote a paper in March called Sparks of Artificial General Intelligence. And at the heart of it were a number of different observations about what GPT-4, so the next iteration after ChatGPT, could do. They asked GPT-4 to conduct an exercise that then also asked ChatGPT to conduct, and it was, can you balance a book on a laptop on nine eggs on a bottle on a nail, right? <laughs> and when ChatGPT had done it, it got it wrong. It the was earlier like, iteration. Yeah, got ChatGPT it wrong. had said, like, we'll put the book on the laptop and then we'll put the bottle and then we'll put nine eggs on top of each other and the nail on top. And I was like, okay, look, this thing is just essentially doing sentence completion. Mm. It doesn't really have what we think of as intelligence. When they asked GPT-4 to do it, and I'll get this probably slightly wrong, but it put the book at the bottom, then it put a square of the nine eggs, Mm. then the laptop on top of that, then the bottle, then the nail pointing upwards. It balanced. And the thing that really struck Sebastian about that was, one, that's not something you can just scrape off the internet. No one's asking people to do that. It's not a function they can easily just copy. And it's not sentence completion. It's And the thing that really frightened me about it was when they said, and we don't know how it did it. 
We don't know. Mm. And that's the reason why this Hollywood story, a bit like heat and climate change, a really complicated systems challenge has one of those moments that we can all understand. Mm. And background actors, even though it's probably not central to the real actors and screenwriters dispute is an issue we can all understand. We all in our own way feel like background actors. So how do you square that, Basher, with a one massive systems change challenge, climate, and another AI? Well, it's a bit like pick your Armageddon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I think you're right that the dispute, and it is a sort of labour dispute, financial dispute between the big... Um, big studios and actors is a symptom of a much bigger question that's coming for all of us, which is how do we incorporate and, and cope with machine learning in our lives? In some ways, it will hugely enhance our lives and others, it may um, devastate and destroy the world. We don't yet know. So I think it's you're right to say that this is a moment that helps you understand the kinds of practical questions that are coming for us in how we incorporate machine learning and generative AI into our lives. But I think we've we have those moments in it with climate. We, you know, I was reading about a, an Italian construction worker who was working on building a new road in northern Italy, and he died of heat stroke a couple mm. of days ago. And that is raising a huge question for the trade unions: what kinds of labour practices are they going to now push for, and what kinds of temperatures are they going to say that people can no longer work in? So I think these are two they're, they're two examples that. It, and, and it's happening all around us. And I, but I think I do think that the the question of how we use images is mm. I would just say that if it were engineers or, or factory workers in Germany striking right now, we probably wouldn't be paying as much attention. But when it's all of Hollywood's most beautiful and glamorous stars, <laughs> as well as thousands and thousands of actors who aren't making less that much money, glamorous. let's be fair, you do pay attention. I think it's easy to dismiss this story as, oh, it's Hollywood, um, but look at the Me Too movement and what started there. These stories have global impact. Also, this was meant to be the return of cinema. You know, the, the double release of Oppenheimer and Barbie was supposed to be the thing that says, look, Hollywood is back, cinema is back. And for this strike to coincide with this enormous double launch, I think, is, is very interesting. Yeah. Well, look, let's park both of those there, pause for a minute, and then do what the rest of the news business does, acknowledge that that's very important, and then talk about tax. <laughs> <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's come to Cat's story. It's the third horseman of the apocalypse. <laughs> what um, so over the weekend, uh, there were reports in the Times that senior conservatives are talking about um, not just reducing inheritance tax, but abolishing it completely uh, at an annual cost of £7 billion to the Treasury. Um, they are talking about putting it in the manifesto for next election. So it's not in the sort of current uh, financial cycle, uh, but we are talking about it being sooner rather than later. Um, and it comes perhaps instead of plans to cut income tax, um, which it, it's about half as much as that plan would have been. That would have been £13.7 billion a year. But obviously, it affects much fewer people. Now, I think the interesting thing about inheritance tax is this weird disconnect between the number of people who actually pay it, which according to the most recent Treasury figures, is just 3.76% of UK adults paid it in the last um, uh, period. And the number of people who think they are going to pay it, which according to YouGov polling is about a third of people. And I think this is exactly what the Tories are uh, hoping to manipulate, if you look at some of the quotes that were in that article, they acknowledge that it is not actually something that is going to help a lot of people. It is something that is going to help them win the election because people think they pay it. And it's and they actually say a lot of the quiet parts out loud, it is a wedge issue. It would force Labour to be sort of anti-wealth and so on. But the reason why I think it is more than just a political story is because of the time that it is coming right now when we are in the midst of a major financial economic crisis. So last week, the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, put out uh, a report saying that Britain's public finances are in a very risky condition and debts could rise to more than 300% of gross domestic product within 30 years. Now, they said the government needs to impose permanent tax rises and spending cuts equivalent to 4.4% of GDP in 2028 to 2029 if we are to stop debt from going above 100% of GDP in the long term. And that's where it is at the minute, but they're talking about it being a kind of paradigm shift that that is where it is all the time. Now, Trevor Phillips has also written an op-ed in The Times in, entitled End Inheritance Tax and Risk a Class Revolt. He talks about how, um, as it stands, inheritance tax is, some, is, is um, a, a policy that encourages social mobility and getting rid of it, he says, will largely benefit only those rich enough to keep a Coots account. It's an interesting thing, this, because the Times itself made the argument in its leader column yeah. for the ab abolition of inheritance tax. The letters page has come out with a host of people saying, that's not right. 
I happened to be much wealthier than I was because the value of my house multiplied over the decades that I've lived in it. But all I've done is lived in it. And the thing that's interesting to me about this story is whether or not the Tories will push through with it, because I suspect that perceptions of wealth have really changed. And rather than thinking, you made your money, it's fair that you keep hold of it. The perception I think in this country has changed, which is you were lucky enough to buy a house when house prices were low, interest rates were low for a long time, house prices soared in value. You did nothing to well, earn that increase in wealth. Why should it all stick with you or your family at the expense of other young people who are trying to get on the housing ladder? And, and they are sort of preaching to the choir, okay? Do they really need to win over the, the wealthy boomer generation that are probably going to vote Tory anyway? Good point. Or do they need to win over the sort of um, middle classes who are a bit more precarious, who've probably put literally the house on being able to buy, get a mortgage that is now suddenly going to be five, six hundred, seven hundred pounds a month, much more. This reminds me a little bit of um, the uh, fateful mini budget where uh, Kwarteng and Trust suggested that they were not, hang on, let me get this right, they were going to cut the top rate of tax and it was one of the things that I think publicly just went down like an absolute lead balloon because they misread the public opinion and sentiment. And I, I feel like this could be similar for the Tories that, yeah, they're not, these are not the people they need to convince the super rich. All right. This is quite a morning. The week hasn't even begun. And we're <laughs> trying to figure out how to navigate three enormous stories about justice in our economy the responsibility of journalism around climate, how we understand the disruptions of AI. What leads? Kat, <laughs> assuming you can't choose your own, what would you choose? I am going to do a total U-turn on my um, uh, climate change. Uh, uh, terrifies me, therefore. <laughs> uh, my, my problem with climate change stories is usually, uh, as Basha says, one of agency and and sort of this sense that what can we do about it? But I do think that given all of the stories, and I know Basha said she wasn't going to talk about uh, this weird climate pattern and that weird climate pattern, but I think actually combining them all together, it is it is the story probably of the next few weeks. Basha, what would you choose? I think I'm going to have to go with the glamorous celebrities. Um, sorry, Kat, not the glamorous Tories. Um <laughs> I think the question about how we respond to AI and how we and this is this is how we respond to it in a cultural economic sense but I think that this is just one part of the debate and it's going to come up in almost every part of our lives over the coming years and I think this is the vanguard debate and uh, and I think it's important. Patricia I think I want to go with climate change um so long as the angle is focused more on infrastructure and the practical political decisions that we can make around it. Um, I just feel the inheritance tax story is a little bit too hypothetical right now, even though it's a really interesting debate. I just it feels convenient timing before the by-elections as well. All right. Well, let me have a go at this. First thing is to say thank you. I really thought that all three stories made me think really deeply about what's happening in the world. And actually, I got really irritated by the news this weekend. I felt as though nothing that was running on the bulletins really mattered. And they all felt 
small and I couldn't understand why there seemed so much going on and it felt like the news just seemed entirely optional. So all of those things seemed important. As you know, Kat, I have a soft spot for stories about uh, economic policy making in general, but particularly the identity crisis of economic conservatism. It mm. feels to me as though the Tories are really struggling to identify what they believe beyond the rhetoric of enterprise small state lower taxation. And I think this is really revealing this story because what it really tells you is they know they need to provide enough revenue to deliver on the public services they're now committed to. So they're trying to find things that are symbolic mm -hmm. of the direction they want to go in without necessarily taking too much out of the public purse. So I think it's a really interesting story. As you can tell, Patricia, I'm really suddenly animated by this AI issue. I feel like we journalistically are not doing a good enough job of making that real. And the reason why the Hollywood story, the actor's story and the screenwriter's story seems to me to make perfect sense as a way of explaining it is that it's coming and it's coming much sooner than we think. And it's not necessarily, um, you know, the AI apocalypse. It's not necessarily artificial general intelligence overtaking humans. It's just putting a certain bunch of people out of work apart from the very, very few the very few famous names. Mm. So in a normal day, the, co the sensible thing would be to say, look, we would put tax third, actors and AI second, and then lead on heat on the basis that heat is obviously going to be the story that everyone talks about. It's the pressing climate issue. We're a few months away from COP. It focuses minds. I think the real question is, how do you respond to the challenge that is put by Andy and lots of other people who are frustrated by journalism? I suspect that the, the thought that I had, Basha, listening to you, when you were talking about what do unions campaign for in terms of workers' rights in very hot circumstances, was what would a bulletin look like? What would a paper look like? What would a website or a magazine look like if you just unpacked the whole story and you did something that was deliberately disruptive to try and break through the noise and say, actually, today what we're going to do is we're just going to take this story. We're not going to run any other, anything else. We're going to start with 48.8 degrees in southern Italy. We're going to make the links to Phoenix and to Japan, but we're then going to say, Right, let's understand frequency of weather systems and heat with climate change. We're then going to try and get into what that means for specific groups of people, outdoor workers, people over the age of 80 who tend to die. Obviously, the risk of all of that is that your viewers or listeners go, oh, good grief, another kind of dull, whinging climate change uh, special but the benefit of it is at least you're saying, yes, no, we know we're doing that. We know we're ramming this down your throat because we don't think it's landing. And at least you're answering the critique that Andy and lots of others make, which is you seem to be dealing with this like a another story and it's not. So for that reason, today I'd go heat and nothing else. <laughs> wow. <laughs> God, my I didn't worst know where that was result. Going. Yeah, I didn't think it was possible. <laughs> uh, for lots of people who don't work in news, they don't know what the spike is. For those of us who do, that old business where you used to write your story and it was printed out and they put it, they spiked it. It never even made it into the paper. Well, there we are. Cat, Basha, Patricia, thank you very much.
Uh, most of all, thank you for listening. Of course, if you disagree with my decision, and you may well do, uh, or in fact, if you think there's a different story that we really should be talking about, and that should be either making the news or leading the news, then just as Andy did, please do drop us a line. The email address is newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. That's newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. We're going to be back with another episode of the News Meeting on Friday. I hope you'll join us then. Tortoise. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.